These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, we saw the rise of the legendary Sargon of Akkad, from the son of a gardener to the king of all of Sumer and Akkad. But though his ambition and skill were surely exceptional, he has so far done nothing to really cement his place in history, except as another conquering king and possibly also as a military reformer. Well, soon enough, all that is going to change. We don't have a very good sense of Sargon's timeline between his conquest of Sumer and the events surrounding the end of his life. Honestly, we aren't even certain where his capital city of Akkad actually was, and scholars are divided as to whether it was even on the Euphrates or Tigris rivers, with site proposals ranging as far north as modern Baghdad. But the Akkadians and Sargon himself wrote enough that we can state in general terms what kind of impact his rule had on the people who lived there. And so we're going to take the core of the empire into consideration and focus on the administrative changes his new empire brought and look for a while at administration, economy, technology, and culture during the 55 years that he ruled. As mentioned last episode, a lot of the trends are going to be things that have been developing over centuries, but others will be genuine Akkadian innovations. But because of how difficult it is to pin things down over the five dozen cities of pre-Akkadian Sumer and over the 500 years of the early dynastic period, we'll take a look at the 100-year height of the Akkadian Empire as a fixed point in time to get a good sense of just how life looked to a man over 4,000 years ago. Once we've looked over all this, the next episode will return to the more linear narrative with a discussion of his military conquests, his international ambitions, and ultimately his death and succession. But before I begin, I have to say that I owe a lot of this episode to Benjamin R. Foster's book, Age of a God, a unique and masterful synthesis of the archaeological work that comprehensively covers pretty much everything currently known about life during the Akkadian period. So, thank you, Mr. Foster. Anyway, looking first to the Akkadians, the group that would be a pivotal power block for Sargon, we know from their language that they were Semitic, and we presume from context that they'd been living there peacefully for quite some time. But while we occasionally hear from the northern Semitic peoples in general, we know basically nothing about Akkad or Akkadians before their first famous tribesmen. And so it's principally from the absence of complaints about barbarism and nomadism that we surmise that they had basically the same life as their Sumerian neighbors prior to this period. What's more, the Akkadians don't seem to have put very much stock in lineages or history in general. Sumerians and later peoples would frequently name themselves in reference to their father, such as inscriptions from Lagash exalting Enmetena, some of Enanatum. But for Akkadians, their personal name alone is typically sufficient. And from the fact that Later on, we see people with clearly Sumerian names and probable Sumerian descent being called Akkadian due to their cultural and political positions. 
We can take Akkadian less as an ethnic identity and more as a tribal or almost political one, though we shouldn't go too far in the direction of discounting it as a serious part of an Akkadian's identity. All this matters because now that Sargon has an empire, he needs some way of holding it together. We saw these issues in the episode about King Shulgi, and though he actually postdates the Akkadian Empire, he represents the problems that were faced by all Sumerian hegemons. What Sargon did was insert picked men into important positions in Sumerian cities. These so-called men of Akkad would at times report the going-ons of the city and exercise a certain amount of control within the local government. For the most part, the old government of a city would be allowed to continue governing with little interruption, but always watching over them would be the man of a cad, a proper Acadian backed by a small professional garrison and a newly imported community of nobles to ensure that Sargon's interests were always kept in mind. And in fact, it's quite possible that Commander Aradgu from the King Shulgi episode was meant to act in a similar fashion on King Shulgi's behalf, though the later Sumerian abandonment of a professional military meant that they were unable to effectively maintain the amount of threat required to keep local strongmen in line. These appointed Akkadians, as well as a new class of Akkadian nobility moving in, would be in charge of a considerable amount of land, livestock, bonded labor, salaried positions, and riches, which would be their pleasant job to distribute as they saw fit. This was used to create a vast system of patronage, unlike any seen before, where a veritable horde of retainers, clients, and hangers-on would become dependent in some form or another on the largesse of a patron, and in exchange would owe the patron favors to be repaid in whatever form and at whatever time the patron demanded. The system was not unlike the later Roman system, and though it remained largely informal, it would have been a major stabilizing influence, cementing the roots of the foreign nobles in the local community. But though a light touch would always be preferred in this era of difficult power projection, Sargon never relied solely upon these agents of Akkad to maintain order in his conquered cities. He reserved the right to appoint kings at his own discretion, and reduced all who claimed a higher title to the somewhat lower, though still exalted, N.C. Priest King. With a sympathetic king and news of the power and success of the Akkadian military flowing in regularly, compliance was maintained for the most part. Additionally, he had the cunning idea of setting his own family in high positions within the temples, including, most famously, his daughter Ehedwana, the woman who enjoys the distinction of being the oldest known author in human history, a prolific composer of brilliant and extremely popular hymns to Ishtar, to whom she was appointed high priestess in Ur. Now, Placements like this would typically be seen as nepotism, distributing rich and easy jobs to close relatives, but Sargon seems to have picked people who would take their jobs seriously. On one hand, there is no doubt that Sargon was personally very pious. He even had his own personal god, Ilaba, one of many war gods. 
and had no desire to offend the gods by appointing bunglers to maintain the divine houses. But more importantly, Sargon believed himself to be divinely appointed to his role, and also wanted everyone else to know that his empire was sanctioned by the gods. And so, by appointing skilled priests who were also certain of the gods' preferences for Akkadian governance, he was able to use the greatest form of mass media available at the time to gently nudge popular opinion in his favor. To the average person, very little change would have been noticed. There are some places that cite crushingly high levels of taxation, but it's not clear if this is a Sargonic innovation or if the Akkadians just continued previously accepted practice. Almost no material change is noted by archaeologists with the coming of the Akkadian period. Farmers still farmed the same crops and craftsmen still worked with more or less the same tools. Outside the palaces and temples, disruption was minimal. The particular wars and labor projects that the commoners were conscripted into may have changed, but the fact of regular conscription was as old as civilization in Mesopotamia. There was apparently a notable improvement in artistic techniques, particularly with regard to the cylinder seals the Akkadian nobles would use as symbols of authority, but honestly, there is nothing I am less qualified to do in life than discuss art. The average person, at most times in history, including this one, was a farmer. In the episodes on Lagash, I discussed how factors inherent in the Sumerian economy slowly pushed more and more people out from being freeholders to being tenant farmers. But in this period, the balance shifts. With the conquest of Sumer, a whole new class of nobles is formed that carve territories out for themselves. This disruption breaking up many older estates, cutting the power of the old nobles in a city. Additionally, the web of patronage saw many people gifted lands outright, rather than simply being hired to tend a noble's land, and the two forces worked together to restore the place of small family farms in Sumerian society. So that's a good victory. Conditions for that average farmer would have been rough, and more so when considered through modern eyes, but they don't seem to have looked on it as unbearably onerous at the time. Modern scholars estimate that a single worker could manage about two hectares per person. The average holding ran from six to 12 hectares per family plot. Recall from the episode on wisdom literature that the best practice was to operate in small teams of three. So three to six people operating during harvest season is about right for an extended family, maybe parents with a few adult children. Tax rates could be as high as half the crop, and a tenant farmer might only be allowed to keep a third of their harvest though the tenant would also expect to be paid a certain amount in compensation for working the land, which is part of what motivated the Akkadian nobles to prefer small holdings. They sacrificed a level of direct control over the land in exchange for not shouldering the burden of risk, leaving instead the small holders to benefit in good times and suffer alone in bad times. Besides the political concerns, 
that drove the Sumerian nobles to want to be more powerful in their city were less important because, of course, the Akkadian nobles were put in there by the sword and not by general agreement of the community. Still, even with these shocking rates of taxation, many farmers and also many pastoralists who experienced similar conditions managed to produce enough for themselves and enough surplus to sell on the market if the year wasn't too hard. Another class that saw little change with the shift to the Akkadian Empire was slaves. While no one had any great desire to become enslaved, scholars believe that Akkadian and Sumerian slaves were relatively well treated. Due to the high price of a human being, with a standard adult male costing nearly but not quite as much as a prime agricultural donkey, the population of slaves was always low compared to free men and nobility. It seems, for the most part, slaves were used principally as house servants of the high nobility, a way to show off one's wealth, or sometimes as specialized labor, like being skilled boatmen or skilled craftsmen. Overall, it seems that Mesopotamian slavery was far gentler than the institution as seen at other times in history, and was undoubtedly far more humane than Roman, Arab, or New World slavery. Indeed, by most accounts, the most wretched of the poor free laborers were worse off and more abused than the average slave. But there was one walk of life for whom the rise of a true empire in Mesopotamia really did change things, aside obviously from the old displaced nobility and their new Akkadian replacements. That is the laboring, non-landowning class. These are the people who would make up the bulk of the labor force at the disposal of the temples and palaces in the pre-Akkadian period, and they would be run even harder under the more ambitious government of Sargon, and were likely the class which made up his professional army. The laborer would have been a man in nearly every case, and he would have been set into one of three types of jobs. Perhaps most common would have been as agricultural day labor on one of the many fields owned by the great institutions, the nobles and temples, to provide food for the sometimes hundreds of people employed there. Alternately, a laborer would be set to a task with a strict and easily measured quota, like number of bricks laid or length of canal dug. This mode is most closely related to the famous large-scale construction projects, since they would have been incredibly labor-intensive. They were also sometimes employed as assistants to more skilled workers. For example, a cook is, in one record, given 27 men to order around, while in another, a blacksmith is given two extra hands. These professionals would also have been wage earners, but more securely employed in their trade. In the pre-Akkadian period, these sorts of more specialized workers would typically have been employed in small numbers by any particular institution, like a noble's personal metalsmith to do all the repairs and fabrication around the estate. This mode of employment doesn't go away, but in the Achaean period, we start to see massive factories arise in which specialists are gathered in large quantities and non-specialized labor is brought in in even larger quantities to repetitively mass-produce necessary goods. 
One document from a slightly later Akkadian king tells of 15 foremen supervising 90 smiths with an unknown but surely much larger number of menial assistants during the construction of the temple in Nippur. Goods were mass-produced in factories for the first time in history, owing in large part to the tremendous increase in international trade flowing through the Akkadian Empire. Tools, weapons, pottery, and clothing, this last being one of the only trades open to women, were produced in tremendous amounts to meet the needs of government and the market, both domestic and international. Now, don't get it in your head that these factories were really anything like modern factories. There were no conveyor belts, very few and primitive tools of any kind. Rather, it would be just a large building, possibly even just a large tent, in which hundreds and hundreds of perhaps weavers would all be set to weave cloth in the tent all day. Then at the end of the day, they would be required to show that they had produced so many bolts of cloth in order to receive their daily wage. That sort of factory. And in fact, this is the sort of factory that would go on pretty much everywhere until the modern era. The last sort of labor that held the empire together was the scribe. The culture that invented writing was justifiably quite taken with it and wrote down absolutely everything. A scribe would be attached to pretty much every sort of production greater than household scale, recording actual production, average productions over time, resource usage, purchases, sales, distributions, best practices, daily attendance, punishments, legal agreements, inventories, wages, taxes, transport logistics, and so on. Without consistent records, the sheer scale of Akkadian industrial production would have been impossible, and this same bureaucracy is what enabled Sargon to maintain the largest armies ever seen year-round. To put it in context, archaeologists assume that the number of written documents recovered after 4,000 years is, of course, only a tiny fraction of the total amount written by Sumerians and Akkadians, but still, we found an estimated 2 million written fragments of some size. Of those, only a tiny minority, perhaps 50,000, have ever been translated by anyone in modern times. And of those translated, 97% are administrative records of one sort or another. And of the remaining 3%, the literary works, most of those are repetitive hymns singing the praises of gods and kings. The actual stories that are of most interest to a modern general audience are only a tiny fraction of that tiny fraction. Which is to say, many, many records were kept in the Akkadian Empire. There is, in fact, a satire written about Sargon during the Babylonian period a few hundred years later in which Sargon is calling up all the people he will need to launch a new military campaign. The joke is that he calls up ministers and priests and cooks and teamsters and every kind of scribe, but gets so lost in the listing of bureaucratic ancillaries that he forgets to actually bring along any soldiers on this campaign. 
Sargon was legendary in later times, but small minds were perhaps more able to appreciate his results than the logistical apparatus required to reach those results. Wage earners of all sorts, laborers, craftsmen, and scribes alike, were paid in two sorts of allotments, a provision of prepared food, perhaps daily or weekly, intended to see to a man's immediate needs, as well as a less frequent ration of unprocessed goods like fabric and grain, the idea being that behind each man would have been a small family, or at least a woman in the home, who would turn these raw materials into clothing and additional food for the family unit. More skilled workers, like scribes or coppersmiths, would have been paid more, but they would in most cases have only been more comfortable, not properly enriched. It's much harder to get a clear picture of the invisible half of Mesopotamian society, because women were, with very few exceptions, illiterate, and the men considered it unnecessary to make records of what went on inside their household that was, after all, the woman's job. The house itself would, on average, contain two or three small rooms situated around a courtyard. The walls were thick and the windows were small so that the temperature could be bearable in the climate. A rare inventory of household furniture, possibly as part of an inheritance or sale, lists as the possessions of the household. One bed made of wood, two breadboards, two wooden hand mills for milling flour, four wood boxes of various size, ten ox hides, four cups, and small quantities of barley and myrrh and tallow. The wooden bed would have been the most significant single piece of furniture in any house, given the scarcity of wood in the region. The house would also include an oven and table, likely built of brick as part of the house itself, not as separate furniture. Wealthier families naturally had larger houses with more goods. As for the occupants of that house, the Sumerian ideal was to have between two and four sons. These sons and the much less important daughters would have been raised in the house by the mother while the father worked. Notionally, the woman never left the house, but there is enough evidence to suggest that this was taken somewhat loosely and that the home was not literally a prison for any but the most oppressed of wives. Infants were like every other infant the human race has yet produced, useless giggling perp machines. Rattles were very popular and made of all sorts of materials to match the family's budget. Older children would move on to cooler toys, including wood and clay models of carts, donkeys, sheep, and other animals, many of which had functioning wheels to be rolled around the house, vroom, vroom, and on the street when mother kicked them out from rolling it around too much, presumably. We assume there were dolls as well, but being made of cloth, none have survived to be recovered. Outdoors, they would have played any number of games, from informal imagination games to impromptu competitions like wrestling and racing, all the way up to more formal affairs like the poorly understood stick and ball game that even King Gilgamesh famously got involved in. Indoors, 
they were known to play board games, including one where you would roll dice to move a token along a board, and landing on another player's piece would send them back to the start position. Wealthy children of all ages would be watched by slaves and nursemaids, though in most families the burden would be wholly on the mother, possibly assisted by older siblings. A boy child would usually follow his father's trade, often directly, though in the process of going off to form his own household, there may have been an opportunity for a certain amount of shifting around, depending on the time, place, and economy. Still, the sons of farmers usually farmed, the sons of craftsmen usually followed that craft, and the sons of the wealthy would go to scribal school, the eduba, and once literate could assume a wide variety of middle and upper class functions. A girl's fate was about as fixed, if not more so. Sometime between perhaps the ages of 14 and 17, she would be sold. It was always and everywhere a girl child's fate to be sold by her parents in very mercantile terms once she reached the age of maturity. Most would be sold into marriage, and while the girl's feelings would be taken into account more often than not, there was certainly no hard obligation for any party to gain consent of the bride-to-be. Some would be sold into temples as priestesses for the high-born and as servants for the low-born, a fairly prestigious fate in either case, while on the other side of fortune, girls who could not bring in enough wealth with a bridal contract would be sold into slavery or prostitution. Still, slaves, prostitutes, and priestesses were the exception. The average Akkadian woman had only a single career path open to her. Cooking, cleaning, weaving, birthing, and mothering would have occupied most of the day, especially in the pre-industrial age when so much more had to be done by hand with few or no good tools. Still, there seems to have been enough time for an enterprising or possibly desperate woman to add on a bit of household industry, producing and selling a bit of clothing, prepared food, or brewed beer. And of course, there was always time in the day set aside for a good bit of gossip, likely while at a communal water source or among neighbors. The Acadian woman would find her life's accomplishments in the private sphere and be wholly invisible in the public. Even most kings didn't bother recording the names of their mothers and wives, and in fact, we only know the name of King Sargon's wife from a single fragmentary inscription on a bowl indicating that this particular bowl was her gift to a temple. What's more, her name is given as Tashlultum, a word meaning spoils of war which one assumes was not the name her mother gave her at birth and implies quite a lot about her personal biography. The one thing an Akkadian woman did not usually have to worry about was polygamy, since though it was legal, it was exceedingly rare even among the nobility. With a loving husband, many women would have found good, if circumscribed, lives, and evidence points to the average family being a generally happy one, much like every other culture in the world. A hard life under a hard sun 
would have aged the average Sumerian or Akkadian much quicker than we're used to nowadays. Life expectancy at birth is estimated to be as low as 26 years, though much of that is infant and early childhood mortality. More tellingly, a Bronze Age individual who made it to the age of 15 could only expect to live another 30 years on average, being lucky to make it much past its 50s. As such, there was not much of a formalized retirement period, but there were provisions made for the infirm. That is, you would stop working when you could no longer physically work. If you were an independent man, you would rely on your children and your savings if you had any, while those who had been laborers all their life were customarily entered into a list of infirm dependents of the temple or noble and given regular allotments until death. Women would at all times be dependent on their husbands, but the Akkadian government had a welfare program for distributing food to widows and the poorest of infirm men. A fairly charitable practice for a society usually characterized as hard-nosed, pragmatic, and hyper-competitive. These disbursements, like most lower-class wages, would have been in goods either directly usable like bread and beer or common materials like grain and cloth. Silver coinage was widespread, but mostly passed through the hands of merchants, temples, and government. But I don't want to get too deep into macroeconomy in this episode. I've tried to focus as much as possible on the living conditions of each class of society, but honestly, it's been a bit of a struggle to even generate this much. Archaeologists do what they can to illuminate the past, but the lack of Akkadian interest in writing about daily life means that so much is lost forever to us. To be fair, when was the last time you wrote about the boring minutia of your daily life for the benefit of future historians? Perhaps we should start a project to carve this sort of thing into stones and bury them around the country as a treat for curious podcasters 4,000 years from now. But anyway, this has been a look at the Akkadian Empire at peace. But of course it was, in point of fact, almost never completely at peace, with campaigns expanding the borders continuously until revolts and invasions sent arrows in the other direction. And so, next episode, we will look at the military and economic side of Sargon's empire. So join me next time as we look at the things that the king himself considered to be his greatest achievements. Thank you for listening.